Um, I am so glad that we have the opportunity to worship together. I'm grateful for the chance to, that technology offers us to be able to continue to have a sense of normalcy and rhythms and worship together. Um, let's pray, and we are going to jump right into what we have in front of us today as we continue our series in the book of Romans. Father, this is an uncertain time. For some of us, it's difficult because it's, uh, we naturally are more cynical and dismissive, and so it's difficult to know why everything is being canceled. For others of us, it's anxiety-inducing and fearful, and we can't put our phones down or turn off the news or turn off social media, and, and fear has gripped us. For many of us, we're somewhere in between. And so we thank you that we have your unchanging word, that we have the opportunity to hear your voice and to come to you and that you will speak to us and that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we thank you that we have something to cling to and a foundation for our hope. We pray that you would work in your church in this moment globally, that your people would, would be wise, but also not be fearful, that your people would would serve self-sacrificially and find ways to, to work for the good of others, that we would love people well, and that, that you, your gospel would show hope to a world that is desperately in need. And so today, as we open your word, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us. And so we lift this time to you and our hearts to you in the name of Christ. Amen. Man, well, it has been a difficult week. It's, it's a little overwhelming. And again, for some of you, I think for some, you're more prone to say, like, what's the big deal? Why is the NBA canceled? Why did all major sports shut down? Why is, are there travel restrictions everywhere? And isn't this an overreaction? And others of you are wrecked with anxiety and fear. And some of you are vulnerable, especially those of you who are tuning in and watching online that you don't want to leave your house. And and so that's what your struggle, I think, and I think most of us find ourselves somewhere between those two poles, that we're concerned, you're watching things spread, you under, we understand that there's reason to be concerned, especially as we look at how this thing has moved globally, and, and yet it, we wonder, is this all really necessary? And I think that's one of the hard things about it, isn't it? That, that if we do everything we can do to limit things and to take precautions, then it when we come out on the other side, it will look like we were overreactive. Um, and we would, so there's no way that this is gonna come out easily. The closest historic parallel, I was doing some research this past week because we were trying to figure out what we would do as a church, and the closest parallel I could find in DC was the 1918 Spanish flu. During a similar crisis, the churches in D.C. came together and worked with the mayor of the District of Columbia at the time and followed the mayor's recommendation to suspend worship gatherings in the midst of that crisis, and that was 102 years ago. And in the aftermath of that, Dr. Francis Grimke, um, a prominent African-American pastor, Presbyterian pastor, the pastor of 15th Street Presbyterian Church in D.C., as he reflected on that time, said this. He said, the fact that churches were places of religious gathering and others not would not affect in the least the health question involved. If avoiding crowds lessens the danger of being infected, it was wise to take precaution and not needlessly run in danger and expect God to protect us. And so for us as a church, this has actually been some, provided some guidance for us that we didn't want to run needlessly into danger and, and just assuming that God would protect us. We wanted to have the opportunity to, but, but this is what's different than 102 years ago is that we have the technological capability to continue to provide the ability to worship even as the church scattered. 
And so today, as we do so, we're going to continue to walk through the book of Romans. And I had a choice to make, too, as your pastor, on whether or not we were going to do something different to speak specifically into this moment, or whether to continue in our series. But I think that by God's providence, this, the sermon that we have in front of us today is very timely for us. And so we will continue. We're in Romans chapter 4, the back half of the chapter, beginning in verse 16. And the, the real question that gets addressed in our text today is, is how do we trust God when things don't go like they ought to go? How do we trust God's promises when things aren't going our way? And so we've been in Romans, we've seen that Paul's been building this argument that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and last week we looked deeply into the life of Abraham, that Abraham, in the promises to God in Genesis 12 and 15, that, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so Paul was building the argument that this idea that we are justified or declared righteous, made right in the eyes of God by, faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, it's not new. This isn't something that Paul invented. And in fact, it goes all the way back to the forefather of all of the Jewish people and the Jewish Christians in Rome. And so today he continues, coming out of that argument, and says in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and, not, and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so this context, and we are going to focus in on today. Again, this is a longer section, but centered on Abraham. We've, we started looking at his life last week, but where we're really going to focus today is in verse 18. I think this is the center point of this text, and it closes with a transition into chapter 5 but that is, that is critical, but it, the center point here that we see that in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And so we have the question in front of us, what does it mean to hope against hope? What, is, what does faith look like in, the, in a context where the promises seem delayed? And, and this is a question that's important to us. What is faith? Is faith a blind leap that counters what we logically know to be true? I think this is generally how it's talked about outside of the church, is that people will say, well, you're a person of faith, and the, the implication is you're ignorant. I don't have faith, I have science, or I have philosophy, when really faith isn't about a blind leap knowing about what we logically know to be untrue. It's not just something internal and mystical. There's something grounded here in Abraham. 
that we can take as well. That in hope, he believed against hope. He placed his hope in the supernatural power of God to accomplish what he had no hope to accomplish on his own. Now, throughout Scripture, the faith is more encompassing than just cognitive assent, though it doesn't go against what we know to be true either. So I think that's another thing. Christians have a tendency to think that to have faith in Jesus means that we believe cognitively, we agree that Jesus lived, that he was God in the flesh, that he was killed under Pilate and was raised on the third day. And if you believe those facts, then that's what it takes to be saved. But in Scripture, it's more encompassing than that. But it also doesn't disregard our minds. I had one professor in seminary that used to say repeatedly that, that our hearts can never rejoice in that which our minds reject as false. And so there's the, the, the faith that Scripture talks about, that Paul talks about as saving faith, as justifying faith, is all-encompassing of, of our whole person. And the reason this is important for us is that in light of the fearful time that we are in, I want our, us to be reminded where our hearts can turn, that where our hope can turn, and that there's a foundation for us. That, yes, we're living in the gap between the promises of God and our reality. And Paul Miller has been helpful with, for me on this. That, that we all have an understanding of what God has promised and who God is and what things ought to be like. Even if you're not a Christian, you have a perspective that there's a way things ought to be. And when we look around us right now, this is not how it ought to be. We shouldn't have global pandemics that are killing people and that are shutting down economies and that are going to put people in financial crisis and, and that, are, uh, that are attacking the most vulnerable among us. And th this is not how, what it should be like. And life shouldn't be this way. And so we, th we have an idea of the way things ought to be. And then there's the reality of the plane that we live on when we look around us. And there's a gap there. And in Scripture, that gap is what is called the desert. In the desert place. And, and the reason this text is timely for us is because we typically have one of three responses when we experience that gap in that desert place. For, for some of us, or at some times, we're prone to like, think we're just going to fight through this. We're going to be more determined. And so you might look at the spread of this virus and think, you know what? I can get around it. I'm not going to be fearful. I'm determined we're going to get through this, and I'm not going to be affected, and I'm just going to push through. Maybe. Um, so for some of you, it's not determination, it's delusion, and determination can turn to delusion, where you think, it's not a thing, this is all politicized, or it's not really a thing that's spreading, and it's an overreaction, and when you look at the numbers, it doesn't line up, and so you might be, that, if, you, if you believe those things, you're deluded, you're believing lies. Or for some of you, you're in total despair. The world is ending, and you're convinced you are going to die. You don't know that. And so whether you fall into determination or delusion or despair or like most of us, I think, you can be prone to cycle between the three depending on the moment or the day, faith calls us to something different when we're in that desert place, when we're in the gap between our hopes and the reality we live in. Faith calls us to lament, to be open with God and honest about what we see around us, to be open with our fear and anxiety, to be open with the despair that we have, the pain that we feel, the, to be open with our doubts and the things that, we're, that, that keep us up at night, but it does so not just in despair, but with confidence that God is there, that he can act and intervene, and lament and is fueled by a hope that goes beyond this present moment in suffering. So the big idea today is that when God's promises feel distant, we can hope against hope. 
We'll get to how, what that means as we go. And so this raises the question, how big is your God? Now, Abraham here, it says that he, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he was told, so shall your offspring be. For us looking back at that, that's something that it, I think we can have a tendency, again, to read the chronology of Scripture really quickly. And so you can read Genesis 12, like we did last week, where God came to Abraham and said, all right, I need you to leave everything you know and go, and I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to all the families on the face of the earth. And then we get to 15, and he says, look at the stars, and this is what your offspring will be like. And Abraham believed him, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And we go, yeah, it was two chapters later, three chapters later. It was 10 years later for Abraham. Then, 15 years beyond, so 25 years after that initial call, God came back to him a third time. So Abraham went 25 years, and, and I love that Paul pulls no punches here. He was as good as dead. <laughs> he was 100 years old. The man was barely still moving. And, and still, and so for Abraham, the, the fact that he continued to believe God when his wife had been barren for up to 100 and she was 90, that she had gone through menopause and should not have been able to have children anymore, it is incredible that he still believed God. For us, when we read that quick chronology, and we can look back at thousands of years of human history and say, well, yeah, Abraham is the father of many nations, like definably. There are nations throughout the Middle East that all call Abraham their father, nations of people that are warring against each other, just as Genesis told us. So of course this is true. Abraham didn't have the benefit that we do, and we forget when we are locked in time and space and in our own story that there is an author of all of life and that his promises are more secure than our doubts. But, so Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He hoped against hope. And again, Paul is building this massive argument that our righteousness, our standing before God as righteous and right, are, are only by grace alone through faith alone, and that it isn't new. It goes back to Abraham himself. And so as we understand what it meant that Abraham hoped against hope, we need to begin today by going back to his life again to see how this continues in Genesis chapter 17. So just briefly... Um, God had come and promised this covenant of circumcision, and God said to Abraham in 1715, As for your Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, and she, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, and kings of peoples shall come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you, saying, hey, I had this son. At least let him live before you. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you'll call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and multiply him greatly, and he shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation, and I will establish my covenant with Isaac, who Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So now God got, got concrete with the timeline. And when he had finished talking to him, God went up from Abraham, and Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born into his house, or bought with money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Ishmael, the son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. 
That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Now, a little bit later in chapter 18, they, God and, and two angelic beings met with Abraham, and they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And, and he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said to, said to him, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is there, is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> so, so this is the response. Is, is God met with Abraham and Sarah a third time and had this covenant of circumcision. In Genesis chapter 17, Abraham reacted like any of us would. And people have tried to theologize this out of Romans 4 and say, well, clearly Abraham wasn't actually laughing at God and you know, thinking this wasn't possible because he's a man of faith and his faith only grew stronger. That's not the reading in Genesis 17. When I read Genesis 17, I read an Abraham that responded like I would if I'm 100 years old and God came to me and said, you're going to have a child next year. He laughed like, what in the world? Sarah even fought, fought God about it when he said, uh, you laughed at this idea. Is anything too hard for me? And she's like... Now, this is when this is going to happen? And by the way, I didn't laugh. He says, yes, but you did. <laughs> so if this is the scene we need to read the humanity of these two as they've waited 25 years. They're in old age, and God says this promise is still going to come true, and he was doing it in a way that they could never claim credit for themselves. All they could do was believe God, and it was counted to them as righteousness. And so this is the, there are five calls to us today that we see in Romans 4 that we learn from Abraham in hoping against hope when we are uncertain. That we can believe, believe God when everything stands against it. We can have hope in him when everything shouts otherwise. And when, there, when we are in the depth of doubt and fear, God's word can bring us hope and relief. So first, believe that God's word is true. We're called to believe that God's word is true. And we might say, well, Abraham and Sarah both laughed at God. How does, how does that show belief? But notice what Abraham did after he laughed at God. At the age of 99, he circumcised himself and his whole household. This was not, this wasn't an easy act of faith and obedience for, in Abraham's life. This was not eight days old and something he'll never remember. This was not done in a hospital by, or, or by a rabbi with the right equipment. Nobody had ever done this before. And so Abraham circumcised himself, his whole household. He believed that God's word and promise were true, and, and he, it was personally costly for him. And he had to convince an entire household of men to go and follow through with this, including a 13-year-old boy. He had to convince a teenager, come over here and this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> you will have no foreskin any longer. So this sign that God asked him to pursue, circumcision, was directly related to, through the means through which God's promise would come that a child would be born. And so even that, to say, Abraham, this is the procedure you're going to carry out on this part of your body, which is the very part of your body that is necessary for this promise to come to its fruition. And so he believed that God's word and his promise were true, or he never would have carried through on it. We need to hear this because the original lie that came to humanity from Satan is the same, same one that we struggle with to this day. The first thing that he said to the woman in the garden was, did God really say? 
It was to question what God's word says, to question whether it was clear, to question whether or not it was good and true, whether it was good for them, saying, hasn't God put limits on you that he doesn't want you to be like himself? And that same question plagues us today. Did God really say? And for all the fear and anxiety that we see, one of the blessings of a global crisis like we're in the midst of right now is this is a reminder to us just how finite and limited we are, just how finite our perspectives are, that we don't know what's going to happen. We can't. We don't know how to best respond, and we can try to look at how other human beings have responded, but, but we're, try, we're learning as we go, but, and we don't know how this is going to end. We don't know how, where the story goes, but God is infinite, and he knows every intimate detail about you. He knows where this big story is going. He is both transcendent and imminent, and he, his word stands true throughout all time. This is what we're told, is that, that the glory of humanity is like flowers of the field, and like the grass, it withers and fades away, but it's the word of the Lord that stands forever, that he is the one that actually has perspective. And so when God's promises feel distant, what it means to hope against hope first is to believe that his word is true. Second is to believe that God is capable to act. And this, for many of you, might be the bigger cognitive leap. To believe not just that his word is true. I think for many of you, that's something you go, okay, I've, I believe that. And even when it's hard, there's points where I disagree and I'd like to debate it. But you know, usually when we have a hard time with God's word, we need to remember it's our hearts that are out of alignment, not his word for us. But even there, for most of you, I think this is the bigger leap. Abraham Lincoln, our our president said, to believe in the things you can see and touch is no belief at all, but to believe in the unseen is a triumph and a blessing. And so it's one thing to believe that God exists and to believe he created all things and to believe he created all human beings and we bear his image and likeness and to believe that he has worked in scripture and that when we read about his work with Abraham, that those stories really happened, that he really came and really took him by the hand and really corrected Sarah for laughing and to believe that those things happened. It's even one thing to believe that, that he came to earth in person in the person of Jesus Christ and has worked in history as we read it in scripture, but it's another thing to say that the transcendent creator of all things who is described in scripture for us in ages past still hears us and still loves us, and still sees our need, and still can act and intervene now. And for many of us, I think it's easy to think God did those things in the past. He did those things in this way then. He was present differently then. His spirit moved differently in the age of the apostles, and now he's silent. And we forget that there was a period between the Testaments that he was silent as well, but it wasn't that he wasn't present and acting. Remember, we studied Exodus in the fall, and in Exodus, we see that it opens showing despair and showing that the feeling, the sense of God's people, that he's nowhere to be found. They lived life just like us. And yet, God heard them, he saw them, he knew them, and he was willing to act and intervene in their lives. Well, we might think things have changed, but God cannot change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Abraham believed that God could act in his own life in Sarah's. That's why he carried through with circumcision. And so for us, this is an easy diagnosis in our lives, an easy way to figure out whether we believe God can move and act now is simply to say, when things go bad and when things go wrong, what's your first response? Do you, do you turn to prayer? 
Not to say that you just seclude yourself off and only pray in your life, but you actually inter- inter- ask God to intervene. Do you, as Tony Evans said, that, that prayer is, is giving an earthly request or earthly permission for heavenly interference? Are you approaching God saying, I need you to move in this because I've got no hope on my own? Or do you fall into determination or despair or delusion in order to get through? God can still act. And yes, we need to be smart. Like Francis Grimke said, it was wise to take precautions and not needlessly run into danger and expect God to protect us. But do you believe that God can intervene? Well, when God feels distant, work for that. Cultivate that. I had a pastor mentor of mine say that when, if you bemoan your lack of belief, you're, you, you know that you don't have a strong faith, then, then think of what you might do if you did have faith, and then do it. And your faith will follow. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, to reason, what is more absurd and foolish, improbable, yes, impossible, than when God said to Abraham that he should have a son by the barren body of his wife Sarah? What's crazier than that? They were 190, or 99 and 90. So if we follow the judgment of reason, God sets forth an absurd and impossible things. And when, he, and when he sets out to us the articles of the Christian faith as well, that indeed it seems to reason an absurd and foolish thing that the dead shall rise again in the last day, that Christ, the Son of God, was conceived and carried in the womb of the Virgin Mary, that he was born, that he suffered the most reproachful death on the cross, that he was raised up again, and that he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, and that he has all the power in heaven and on earth. And so thank God for the example of Abraham and Sarah when God set out the impossibility of childbirth because this gives us the hope that what happened in the person of Christ and in the work of Jesus Christ is true and that the impossibility of it for us is only possible for God and it shows his glory, but that gives us, that's the foundation if you're a Christian for the hope that God can still intervene now. And so... When God's promises feel distant, hope against hope, believe that his word is true, believe that he is able to act, and third, believe in God's goodness. And this gets more to the issues of our hearts and our and trust than, than issues of our heads. And so even if you get the first two, if you believe that God exists and that his word is true, and if you believe that God can act, then still that there can be a disconnect in those you know, 18 inches from our heads to our hearts. That, that to believe those things are true doesn't mean you trust that he's going to do them in your life and for you, that he sees you and knows you. And so it can be hard to believe that he's good when we look at the world around us. Richard Sibbs, an English Puritan, said, God's goodness is a spreading, imparting goodness. And God is more willing to bestow good than we are to ask it. He's so willing to bestow it that he becomes a suitor to us saying, seek my face. He seeks us to seek him. It is strange that heaven should seek earth, and yet so it is. God is asking us, trust me, look for me, rest in me. And he's given us common grace. This is the common grace that when an illness sweeps the globe, that we have the connectedness and technology we do to know things are coming, that we have the medical science that we do so the medical community can work to try to solve these things. These are common grace from God. Abraham Kuyper described common grace. The common grace is that act of God by which negatively he curbs the operations of Satan, death, and sin 
and by which positively he creates an intermediate state for the cosmos as well for our human race, which is and continues to be deeply and radically sinful, but in which sin cannot work out its end. And so when we look at the pages of Scripture, we can see that in spite of human wickedness and human suffering and the disease of sin, that God is good and pursues us and wants good for us. And so believe in and trust in his goodness when his promises feel distant. Fourth, act in obedience from a foundation of hope. And so when God's promises feel distant, we can hope against hope, and that means that we believe his word is true, that we believe God is able to act, that we believe in his goodness, and fourth, act, that we act in obedience from a foundation of hope. And this is what we see in Abraham. He had no reason to think that he and Sarah could continue to do what they had done physically with each other as husband and wife for, again, since God's promise was 25 years, let alone when they got married. And that something would suddenly change. Like, there was nothing they could do. Sarah was past the time of, I can't remember how Genesis said it, but the, the time of women. She had gone through menopause. There was no cycle for her anymore. The idea of, now I'm going to get pregnant? Now, now when my Lord is, like, did you, God, have you seen Abraham? Do you love that? You, now that my Lord is old? He's, God, he's as good as dead. <laughs> like, now? And... And still, they acted in obedience. Abraham carried through this covenant, this sign of circumcision. And we need to hear this in this time, too. There is a dark humor in all this, right? Like, have you guys felt that tension of wanting to be careful and wanting to be cautious? I've felt this tension, especially as a pastor, knowing that people are looking at everything I do and say right now, and people in our church are going to be affected. But then, you know, I, I wish I had more freedom to send out the funny memes that I'm seeing. <laughs> Because, because there's a dark humor, and we have to be able to laugh at times, and so, you know, people are turning to some of these things, and so, like, somebody sent out a, a picture that somebody had created a martini out of gin in emergency. Um, <laughs> there's a dark humor in that, right? Um, that people are just talking about, you know, what shows am I going to line up, and does Netflix even have enough of a library that I haven't seen yet to go and binge watch through this, and introverts are claiming cultural victory, finally. <laughs> and so, and, but on the other side, there's also panic, and, and panic that's both tongue-in-cheek and real, where, like, even, even on a dark side of humor of, of this, like, parents freaking out about what am I going to do with my children stuck at home, and we don't have an end point. Like, people that are saying, I know people homeschool, I am not a homeschooler, we have public school for a reason, and not, what? And homeschoolers are like, we got this. Same thing with the introverts. Um, and, 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 you know, then we see the crisis of, like, I don't know why there's a toilet paper shortage. This is not a stomach virus. I don't know why that became the thing that everybody suddenly needs. Or bottled water is even more confusing to me. Like, why is there a limit on bottled water, and why are people stockpiling that as if our water supply is suddenly going to cease? Like, there, there, there's an irrationality to some of this. And so walking through it and trying to figure out how to walk through it responsibly can be a challenge sometimes. Well, when God's promises are delayed, though, I think some of these things do reveal some of our own comfort and idolatry. That, and we need to hear that we don't need to turn to those things, but can rest in hope and walk in obedience. And this is the idea. Now, what does it actually mean in hope he believed against hope? This isn't a phrase that we would usually throw around, right? You don't, you don't say, we, I, you probably wouldn't describe somebody's story and say, well, in hope they believed against hope, because people go, what? Martin Lloyd-Jones helps us here. He says, it doesn't mean who, hoped against, who, ho who against hope believed hopefully. 
What this means is, who against hope believed in this hope that God was outlining to him, this future that he was baiting before him. And so it's not just that Abraham had wishful thinking that God might come through. It's that Abraham was looking at it saying, the things that God has said, I'm going to trust those things and believe in those things and put my hope in those things. And that is real hope. The hope of, of the coming of the Son of God in flesh, the hope of salvation, the hope of deliverance, the hope of, of the coming in of the Gentiles into the community of faith, that is the hope. This, it's the great hope that runs right through the Old Testament as a thread from start to finish. And what we're told is that Abraham believed in this hope, and he believed in this promise in spite of everything in his life. And so this, again, can help us because when there's a gap between the way things ought to be and the promises of God and the reality we're experiencing, yes, let's be wise. Let's take good steps, but don't lose hope. And that hope can lead us not into just you know, giving up over the next few weeks if we're quarantined, but to, to continue to cultivate rhythms and patterns in life that, that turn our hearts to the one place where we can actually find hope and not just escape. And the greatest hope we have is this fifth calling to us today, the fifth and final, is rest in the assurance of God's love. We can rest in the assurance of God's love. He was fully convinced in verse 21 that God was able to do what he had promised, and that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This is what it means that he believed, that he hoped against hope. But do you hear how this turns to us then? Paul doesn't let us just leave this with Abraham. He says, for every one of us, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. And so the same call comes to us. Abraham was able to rest in the goodness of God and assured of the love of God for him and for his wife Sarah and for the love of his son Ishmael. I love that that is included in Genesis 17, that Abraham loves his son that he had through Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. And he says, God, just I want good things for Ishmael too, though. And God says to him, Ishmael is not the one that the promised seed is coming through, that the covenant is going to be made with, but he will be the father of nations. Abraham, I've got him. And so he, Abraham was able to rest in God's love for him. I can be, remember um, being younger and as we started getting exposed to church and the rapture was talked about a lot when we started going to church. And, was, I've, and I've talked at our church plenty about some of the scary moments I've had of like being a latchkey kid and coming home and going, oh, nobody's here. All, I got left behind. And then left behind was written and the movies came out and it just made it worse. But I can remember being scared and thinking that I don't want Jesus to come back yet because there's so much I want to do and so much I want to experience and so much I want to pursue and feeling like kind of a nervousness about Jesus' return and what if I don't get to do these certain things first, which showed a deep, I mean, I think poor theology and a misunderstanding of all of it. Now, it's true that as I get older, yes, I mean, you could say, well, I've experienced a lot more things that might have been on that bucket list, but, um, and so maybe that's just why I'm more ready, but I don't think so. I think there is a reality of you get exposed to more suffering as you get older, and the more globalized things become, the harder it gets to believe that this place should continue on. So the more that we cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But at its core, we need to remember that when Christ returns, 
It's not like our lives stop, or our experiences stop, or our enjoyment stop. And we don't just end up in some ethereal place floating around on clouds like fat baby cherubs with harps. It's a physical reality. But it's a reality, if you can imagine, everything in this life, everything good in this life. But, but Christ says, I'm, behold, I'm making all things new. We'll read in Romans 8 that creation itself is groaning, longing for the day of its redemption and waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. And that, that this is what we're looking forward to and anticipating is the day when there won't be viruses that sweep across the, across the globe, but we'll be able to enjoy what God has given us and created for us without any limitation, without, without the restrictions of trying to know whether we're walking in obedience or not because we won't have the ability to sin anymore. All pain will be gone, sickness will be gone, mourning and tears will be gone. And so now looking at the world around me, I'm wondering, like, Lord Jesus, what is taking so long? But it's because I can rest in the assurance of God's love. And I think that here we can, that we can get stuck in that question when we're in times of fear, what is taking so long? And Peter helps us with this. He says, but don't overlook this one fact, beloved. You hear what he says? He says, listen, beloved, God loves you. And with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slow in fulfilling his promise, as some count slowness. Yes, you're experiencing the desert, the gap between reality and the hopes that we have. But God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but, but that all should reach repentance. This is the hope that we have. This is what Paul is saying, that thank God we can look back to Abraham and that faith was counted to him as righteousness because that gives us the hope that the same can be true for us. And we have more of a foundation than Abraham had. Abraham had God coming to him, and, I, and we can say, wow, that, that's amazing, though, but God came to him. Yeah, but it was 25 years later, and Abraham laughed because he said, what is that now? We're still talking about this? Like, you're still... But he was still walked forward in obedience, resting in God's love and resting in the hope that he had that it could come true. And, and so Christ is a greater hope because we can look back at how God's plans have come to their fulfillment in him and we can look at the one who has gone through death so that even death itself doesn't need to bring fear for us. That no virus can take our hope from us. Death itself cannot shake us. That we look through the veil of death and beyond it. So there's, there is long, this longing in our hearts that there must be something more and must be something greater and must be something more glorious and more beautiful and more true than what we experience now. That is all secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus because he died for our trespasses and was raised to life for our justification. And so Hebrews 11 summarizes so much of this as well. When it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that it, that to receive it as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs within him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Do you hear that? Abraham was willing to live in tents, never experiencing the fullness of the promise of God, because he was looking ahead to a city that God designed, that God built, that God founded. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him, a, him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, 
We're born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all in faith, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. This is the calling of everyone who's in Christ. That by faith, we might never see the return of Christ and the promises we have in Revelation. Neither did Abraham. But by faith, even if we die, we can greet these promises from afar, having acknowledged that we are strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Even if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, that they would have an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Church, this is the beauty of what we have in Christ. There's a better city that we look ahead to. That if we feel displaced, and like things aren't as they ought to be in this place, then that's, that's natural because we're strangers and exiles here. That if we cling to an image of a homeland and how things ought to be, we need to realize that there's only one place that will actually bring us satisfaction. And we'll get there in the end. And so through this stretch, let's be smart. Let's be diligent. Let's commit to love our neighbors well in the coming weeks and, and to care specifically and, and intentionally for those who are most vulnerable. And we must not ever lose hope. No matter how bleak things get, no matter how hard or fearful or anxious we feel, we, the Christians are not those who shrink back because we have the gift of God's Spirit to, give us hope, to help us to hope against hope. And for all of us, in, whether Christian or not, we have the opportunity to fix our eyes on the promises of God that have been secured for us in Jesus Christ, and, and that will fix our eyes on the heavenly city. And so we're freed by the Spirit of God to give ourselves over for the good of the earthly city that we find ourselves in with, with freedom and long-suffering joy. We can find hope in, against every circumstance, against all odds. And so thanks be to God because he has given us victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. And let's pray. Father, we need you in this time because when times of fear and anxiety set in, it's hard for us to remember to hope. So thank you for Abraham. That, that we can see that it's okay to be confused, it's okay to be afraid, it's okay to be uncertain, it's okay to doubt, and it's okay to even laugh. <laughs> and that you're big enough to take whatever we're feeling and whatever we have to say. Would you forgive us for falling into patterns of our own despair or delusion or determination and free us to come to you authentically and openly with everything that we are, laid bare before you, but trusting that you are there and that you can move, and that your word is true and that, that, you're, that you are good and that you are loving and, and then stir us toward obedience that is founded on the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, work through your church. Stem the growing, the rushing tide of this virus as it sweeps across the globe. Would you, would you stop it because it's destroying those who bear your image and likeness, who we know that you love. And so would you bring freedom and healing. And in the midst of it, we pray that your church would have their eyes, that we would have our eyes fixed on a heavenly city that you are preparing for us so that we are freed to love 
and to follow the example of Christ and being willing to lay ourselves down for the good of those around us. We pray that you'd move in our hearts and give us hope. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.